The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Rebecca Zanbergen, in for Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine Podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, November 5th on CBC Radio. It has been a dynamic week in Canadian politics between Alberta's pitch to pull out of the CPP and the federal Liberals' carbon tax carve-out. Our Sunday politics panel is here first up to tackle it all. After that, Amy Schneider is the most successful woman in Jeopardy! history. She'll look back on her epic 40-game run and becoming a highly visible transgender representative along the way. Then hear how Qatar has emerged as a key geopolitical player in this conflict. Plus, later on, it's time to test my brain and yours with an all-new round of our monthly challenge, That's Puzzling. That's all starting right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. Things have certainly been heated in Ottawa this week, and it's thanks in large part to heating oil. It comes after Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's decision to exempt home heating oil from the carbon tax policy. And that's not all. There's also Alberta's proposal to pull out of the Canada Pension Plan. Our Sunday politics panel is all warmed up and ready to take on these topics. Susan Delacorte is a national columnist with the Toronto Star. She's in Ottawa. Matt Gurney is a serious XM host and co-founder of The Line on Substack. He's in Toronto. And Kelly Kreiderman is a reporter and columnist in the Globe and Mail's Calgary Bureau. Good morning to everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Kelly, I want to start with you in Calgary. The, the country's finance ministers met with their federal counterpart, Christia Freeland, on Friday. What, what is the feeling? Is Alberta really going through with this proposal to quit the Canada pension plan? I mean, what, what was everyone concerned about on Friday? Well, I think if you had asked me in September how serious about this idea they were, I would have said they're a lot more serious than I believe they are today. And, you know, I I say that having been at the UCP AGM all weekend, where, you know, the pension idea was barely mentioned, it wasn't mentioned by the premier when she gave a speech, wasn't mentioned by delegates. Um, And there seems to be, um, you know, and, and I did talk to the finance minister, Nate Horner, and You know, he emphasized the discussions and the long process that Alberta is in, in terms of any kind of pension discussion in that, you know, Alberta is not necessarily moving down this path. Um, The premier reiterated 
that any move uh, toward a referendum will only happen if Albertans have a solid figure um, in terms of what they would get from the CPP fund if they if the the province decided to withdraw. And I I do feel like there has been a softening on that and and a desire, of course, to put put the discussion not around the pension, which of course isn't supported by everybody in the country, but also isn't supported by many Albertans, even conservatives. And everybody wants to get back to that discussion about the carbon price right now and the carve out, because of course that's where uh, Alberta believes it can win mm. in some regards and, may, and score some political points right now. What what was behind Kelly this this whole thing in the first place with the CPP? What was Alberta Premier Daniel Smith after? This this has been a long process. This was started by former Premier Jason Kenney. There's been discussions of a separate pension plan in Alberta for decades. Really, it's been an idea that has been discussed. And of course, Jason Kenney's government commissioned this report. We thought it was all we thought it was going to be released in 2021. We of course had to wait till September 2023 post provincial election to hear to hear about the government's plans in terms of the pension to hear this uh LifeWorks report that gave this this controversial figure that Alberta is owed more than 50% of the pension fund. So it is it is an idea with uh, deep roots in Alberta first or a fair deal panel idea. And it is one that is discussed because Alberta actually has some weight when it comes to the pension. And and I, I know I'm stating the obvious, but I don't think that was recognized within Alberta or by the rest of Canada mm. until very recently in that Alberta is actually allowed to withdraw from the fund if they mm-hmm. choose. And that will actually have an effect on the rest of the country. It's this big number that is really the, the contentious point. Yeah. Susan, isn't that part of the problem that there is this belief by Alberta that they're entitled to, to, to half the pension or something? Yeah, the formula is very much a, a contentious point. Um, I think Krista Freeland, in advance of her meeting with the finance ministers on Friday, said that if Ontario, BC, and Alberta went by that formula, they'd be entitled to 128% of the um, of the entire pension fund, which is impossible. So I think we're now going to see Ottawa is going to send its chief actuary to uh, to do a proposal. But like Kelly, I see this as as something that seems to be fading even before it started. It's dangerous to say that from Ottawa. But um, I've been watching this for quite a while too, going back to you know Stephen Harper and his firewall letter back in the early 2000s. And the whole idea is that Alberta, this, this is maybe a way of putting it too simply, but Alberta has got to behave more like Quebec. You know, if, if Alberta has got to make the same demands. So Quebec has its own pension system, Alberta should have its own pension mm-hmm. system. It's the squeaky wheel of the federation theory. The difference is that Quebec was never in the Canada pension plan, though, right? Right. Mm-hmm. right. I, and there's another difference here, too, which I find intriguing. Uh, the prime minister stepped up in a way to shut this down in a way that, you know, you you haven't seen him doing with Quebec. He would, he, he's been very careful <laughs> to dance around, um, uh, you know, demands and, and provinces first things. And, and this one, he... 
you can't accuse him of picking the fight, but he certainly stepped up to it. And, and he wrote, you know, uh, he had some strong words to say to Daniel Smith and then Krista Freeland has followed it up. And then this meeting and certainly I think Ottawa feels emboldened because all the other provinces are on their side or most of the other provinces mm. are on their side too. And, and Matt, where has conservative leader, leader Pierre Polyev landed in all of this? I understand he's sort of encouraging Albertans to stay in the Canada pension plan. Yeah, he didn't say a ton. And I, I want to just, first of all, I'm going to echo what Susan and Kelly said. So I uh, pinged, as soon as this idea first came up, I talked to some of my sources in Alberta, and I was hearing from them, oh, yeah, we're standing up to Ottawa, we're going to fight them on this, we really mean it, we're going to go get a fair deal for Albertans. Like a week later, I'm asking him about this, and they're all just sort of like sheepishly laughing and being like, come <laughs> on, it was, just a tr- it was just a trial balloon, we didn't really mean it. So I think that told me a lot of what I needed to know about how serious this was. As for Pierre Polyev, I mean, he, he's going to notice the same things, right? Like if, if this was a fight that was animating conservatives coast to coast to coast, he'd line himself up behind it because he's a good politician and he knows to do that. But when he sees even his uh, natural allies in Alberta immediately backing away from this idea, like someone just fumbled a grenade at the training ground, like he's not going to throw all his political capital behind it. Mm. If Alberta's not going to fight for this, Pierre Polyev won't bother either. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kelly, before we move on to the carbon tax, and I want to leave lots of time for that as well, of course, I know you, you've mentioned it, you were covering the annual general meeting this weekend of the United Conservative Party. What, what did we hear there? What, what sort of stood out for you? Oh, well, what stood out first and foremost is the size. You had almost 4,000 people there. And, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, the difference between kind of, uh, conservatives that have been around in political circles for years and a whole group of new people, um, who the new people are, that's the question. Of course, uh, the group Take Back Alberta, led by David Parker, claims, uh, credit for bringing them into the tent that is the UCP. And I think, you know, that will continue to be a issue for Premier Daniel Smith. There was a motion pass on parental rights that, you know, she doesn't have to deal with today, but the people in the room at the AGM, they will want her to deal with that issue. She is reluctant, by the way, to deal with it, but they will have, um, they will want her to have legislation or something, some take on it someday. Surprising that she's reluctant to deal with it or, or not? It, it's not surprising. She's she's a she's a libertarian at heart. Uh, you know, she has talked about the party being a union of libertarian and social conservatives. And she she did bring up parental rights in her speech and she does believe in parental rights. But she also, you know, speaking to reporters, cautioned about uh, the rights of of kids and uh, spoke about that and talked about representing all of Alberta. And to me, you know, you look at her history in politics, she has been in battles over social conservative issues that have led to big problems or political losses in her in her history. So I think she's very reluctant to wade into this territory. Okay, let, let's wade into the carbon tax right now, because, uh, Susan, this is a huge topic in Ottawa this week. The federal liberals have said that they're going to give people a break on heating oil on the carbon tax for three years. And that applies mostly to people in Atlanta, Canada, where people use heating oil the most. What, what has, Susan, been the reaction so far to all of this? Outrage. Um, I don't... I. I I can safely say that this did not roll out the way the Liberals wanted it to. And part of that is their own fault. 
uh, it was amazing, even a few days later, that you know serious people and and commentators believed that this was only a a carve out for the Atlantic. And as you point out, it it helps the Atlantic, but it's available to everyone across the country who uses home heating oil uh, because of the cost of it. And but. Why do people think it's just for the Atlantic? Because the Liberals stood there, the Prime Minister flanked himself with a bunch of Atlantic MPs and presented it as something for the Atlantic. And they've been having to walk that back all week. Um, so I, from, you know, from the left and the right, there has been criticism for this. One of the most interesting things I think we'll see tomorrow is the Conservatives have a motion in the in the House of Commons. They often pass motions against the carbon tax. Uh, this one is expand the the to expand the carve out. How do you expand a carve out? Expand the <laughs> exemption uh, to uh, to all forms of heating fuel. And the New Democrats are going to vote with them. And that is extremely interesting to me. Uh, it shows that uh, that the left and the right in Canada, if we still have those things, are are united in outrage on this one too, and that's not good news for for uh, Prime Minister. Yeah, what, Matt, what does that signal to you? Not to mention, we have the Saskatchewan Premier as well saying if there's not a carve out for people in his province by January, he's going to stop collecting the carbon tax on not natural gas. I mean, this has really gotten away from the Liberals here. I think. Yeah, no, and Scott Moe was aggressive with that. But I mean, Doug Ford this week also taking uh, a different tack and saying, hey, half the Liberal caucus represent Ontario ridings. Why aren't they advocating for the rights of their constituents to get a break this winter? So obviously the the provinces are fighting back. I think Susan said a minute ago that there was um, anger uh, about all of this. And I I think that there is. But I also think, and I, I include myself in this, believe me, I'm not exempting myself in any way. I think there's also bafflement. And I think part of it is exactly what Susan just said, which is that I've been watching the various liberal proxies, official or unofficial, spend a week trying to explain what the proposals actually are. And I don't think they're having much luck. But also the policy just doesn't inherently make sense. And, you know, we've all been around the sun a few times. We we all have room for cynicism in our understanding of (laughs) politics. There are times when politicians will advocate bad policy because it's great politics. And there will even be times, uh, not as often as we'd like, when a politician will advocate a great policy, even if it's bad politics, because it's worth it. They'll actually show some leadership and they'll spend some capital here. What the prime minister has done is put himself into a situation where he has bad policy and bad politics at the same time. He is united Jagmeet Singh and Pierre Polyev against him. He has the premiers all over him. His own party is trying to walk back how he's messaged this here. If this was one thing or the other, they might have an exit plan. They might have some way of trying to convince the Canadian people or even just the NDP, their confidence and supply partners, that this was a good idea. But it's not a good idea. Hmm. And I I don't know what they're going to be able to do with that here. They haven't really left themselves anything other. The only escape route they have here is just a good old-fashioned Doug Ford (laughs) 180-degree reversal. Do you think, I mean, (laughs) I guess we'll see if that happens, but do you think the Liberals have undermined the carbon tax with with this carve-out? I mean, they've they've said over and over that climate and the carbon tax is a top priority. So what what have they done with this carve-out? Well, I think they absolutely have. And I I think they're they're keen on insisting that they haven't, but I I, I don't think... uh, any of us are obligated to take that seriously here. I understand that their argument 
like in theory, that if you're going to have um, expanded heat pump uh, programs to help especially Canadians who are uh, lower income and, and may not be able to afford it, I 100% understand the argument that, hey, we're going to get heat pumps into homes and we're going to defer the carbon tax until that happens. That is a coherent policy, but that's not exactly what they announced. That's kind of what they've eventually gotten around to trying to convince us that they announced <laughs> but what i mean i think susan had it exactly right when they when they rolled this thing out it was all those atlantic mps behind them this was not offered as some sort of like hey this is a transition program really rooted in good policy it was atlantic canadians come back to us we still love you here's a break hmm. and th- they have not been able to get out from under the weight of their own announcement Kelly, what's been the view on all of this from Western Canada? I mean, I'm sure they have, they have thoughts as well. <laughs> there's there's many, many, many thoughts. I'll just one other point is, you know, the, the announcement also undermines the argument that the Liberals have long made that uh, people get more back from carbon pricing than they pay. There was an affordability element uh, to all of this. And it it undermines the main argument that they've been making on carbon pricing for years. And 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 that is that is also part of the problem. Of course, in Alberta, <laughs> the the position has long been held on the consumer carbon pricing. It, it the the government is against it, and it it is an interesting dynamic right now because um, you have Saskatchewan actually going further than Alberta in terms of the 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 threat of not collecting carbon taxes come January 1st from Scott Moe, right? That, a, a promise that or a threat he is able to make because he has a government-owned uh, utility, whereas in Alberta, it's 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 not. It's a, a, a bunch of private operators. So you you have a dynamic where the Alberta government is is having its case made for it by the Liberal government right now. They, you know, there I talked to people on the sidelines of this conference and you know the 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 liberals won big with the supreme court judgment that allowed them to set a minimum carbon price in 2021 and that had been acknowledged that they won big and here they are undermining their own moral legitimacy in setting a carbon price and not only does it raise questions about the policy it also brings more attention to what alberta would argue are other other unfairnesses in terms of climate policy and carbon pricing, including a cap on oil and gas that's going to come. Now, oil and gas producers pay a carbon price right now, but they're also going to get a cap. And Alberta has spoken about that for a long time, or the pricing in Quebec. It brings attention to a private member's bill that is making its way through uh, the Senate right now, or has made its way through the Senate right now, that talks about how farmers don't have any options other than natural gas for drying wheat hmm. and all types of things that uh, the, the the policy as it stands is very regional focused. And there are these regional disparities in the application of climate policies and obviously now carbon pricing. Susan, lots of outrage, I think, on, on all fronts, as we've, as we've heard on, on this. So where does this leave the state of Trudeau's leadership now? And we've certainly been watching the polls, and I know there are some interesting things in those numbers. But, but what do you think? What's happening with his leadership? I, th- I think things are looking pretty shaky. Um, I have... Uh, did a little Toronto Star promotion. We asked uh, Abacus Data to go into the field last week to to do a deep dive into the trouble for Trudeau and the Liberals and whether a comeback is possible. And I, 
I'll warn any liberals reading it, uh, tempted to read it this morning. It's pretty bleak. Uh, it, it's looking increasingly remote, uh, even with Trudeau gone. And we've, it's, we've heard talk of that this week too. You know, it, it's a, it's a liberal senator saying it out loud, but, um, it's been a bruising fall. It was supposed to have been fixed at that caucus meeting in London. And, you know, all the trouble, liberals were going to get their act together. And uh, what you heard around Ottawa this week is, wow, our act still isn't together. Matt, this this past week, I said, maybe not surprising the timing, but Mark Carney, the former Bank of Canada governor, said he hasn't ruled out a run for the liberal leadership. W- why do you think he's making these comments now? I mean, it seems it may seem apparent. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think I have any explanation beyond the obvious one. Um, and, and Susan, I did read your piece this morning, and it, it generally aligned with what I'd been hearing internally and kind of what my own conclusions were telling me, that Justin Trudeau may not be long for his job. And I think he wants to stay. And I think, to be honest, for what it's worth, guys, my opinion is that he's probably still their best chance. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I don't know if that's going to be the way it shakes out. And I don't know if he's going to get frustrated one day and say the hell with it and just quit or if eventually through some uh, caucus rebellion, he'll be pushed out. But yeah, Mark Carney is obviously uh, back on the media circuit reminding everybody that Mark Carney exists and that Mark Carney has not ruled out a run for the top job. Uh, for what it's worth, I think that would be a terrible idea. I, I don't. I think he would be <laughs> doubling down on the existing weaknesses of the Liberal Party, not increasing uh, any of its um, la- uh, areas where it's lacking. But he's obviously at least intrigued by it. And I, personally, I don't know if if Justin Trudeau cares what what Mark Carney is thinking because sooner or later. Carney will have a chance. And I don't know if it's going to be after Justin Trudeau quits or if he's forced out or before or after the next election. I have no idea. But Mark Carney can wait. The issue for now is how long Justin Trudeau wants to keep him waiting. Mm-hmm. Kelly, what mm-hmm. what do you think then? Is the carbon tax itself on borrowed time? Is is Justin Trudeau on borrowed time? I mean, we, we heard Pierre Polyev say too, let's have a carbon tax election. So wh- where yeah. are things heading? Pierre Polyev's message on this is really simple, you know, like remove the, the, the tax on home heating for everybody right now. And it's, it's a really powerful political message right now, especially as you say, when we're getting buy-in from other parties, you know, my question about the federal liberals is what are they without Justin Trudeau? Um, you know, do they continue with carbon pricing? Is it still a party of, of, of carbon pricing and strong action on climate? Are they still a party that is woefully behind in adjusting to Canadians' expectations on addressing affordability? I don't, the the party has been resurrected by Justin Trudeau and what it becomes without Justin Trudeau, I think that's far from clear. And it is, as Matt said, more than a question of of just his leadership. It is, you know, Nature abhors a vacuum, and that's what it could become as well if if Justin Trudeau decides to leave. Susan, do you think Pierre Polyev is right that there will be a carbon tax election at some point? Uh, He talked about that this week. Somebody in the PMO sent a note to me saying uh, they would rather have a carbon tax election because they believed that the last three were, and they won them. So... Um, yeah, I, they didn't I talk much about carbon taxes in past elections, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I don't. I don't. For what it's worth, I don't think it will be a carbon tax election, much as uh, everybody says they want one. I think the issue is, and and the abacus polling shows this too, is 
if people are in the mood for change, that's what the election becomes about. Matt, I'll give you the last word. What are your thoughts on where this is headed? I, I just can't imagine the carbon tax remaining an issue long enough to get us to the next election and unless something really weird happens soon. The liberals are either going to basically dig in their final trench line on this one or they're going to abandon the carbon tax and the next election will be fought about something else. It's worth pointing out, I was thinking about this last night, it was what, five weeks ago that we had a Nazi in parliament and it seems like two lifetimes ago. I can't even imagine how distant the heating oil debate will seem two years from now when we're actually going to the polls. Fair enough. Yes. Matt Gurney, Kelly Kreiderman, Susan Delacourt, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks. 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 Kelly Kreiderman is a columnist and reporter with the Globe and Mail in Calgary. Susan Delacourt is a national columnist for the Toronto Star. She's in Ottawa. Matt Gurney is a serious XM host and co-founder of The Line on Substack. He is in Toronto. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Rebecca Zanbergen. Well, here's a clue about our next guest. She is a software engineer turned quiz competition rock star. After a 40-game winning streak, she became the most successful woman to ever appear on Jeopardy and the first out transgender contestant to qualify for the Tournament of Champions, earning her way into the game show's history book. If you guessed... Who is Amy Schneider? You'd be correct. Not only did Amy walk away with more than two million Canadian dollars from the experience, it's also catapulted her into the public eye as a trailblazer for queer and trans communities. But in her new memoir, Amy is complicating our ideas of role models and advocates. She explores the responsibilities of fame at a politically divisive time and why life is messier, life's messier moments are also an important part of her own story. The book is called In the Form of a Question, The Joys and Rewards of a Curious Life. Amy Schneider, hello and welcome to the Sunday Magazine. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Amy, you've had a very busy couple of years. Are you still enjoying the limelight? <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, I, I'm a huge diva. I love the attention. It's it's all been great. Yeah, you write about that in the book that you're you're actually quite a big fan of of the fame. Why, why is mm-hmm. that? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's, there's something, I mean, it's very flattering to the ego, you know, Pe- people care about my opinion, people invite me on to Sunday radio shows to to ask me what I think about things and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, I, I'm a fairly opinionated person, and it's nice to feel like I'm not just shouting into the void. Mm-hmm. Not only did you sort of have this wild Jeopardy run, but you you quit your day job. You got married. You found time to write this book. I mean, how <laughs> how has your life changed over these last couple of years? Quite dramatically. It's it's been uh, a real not not something I was expecting. I and I think it's just a real uh, blessing to be able to uh, have at least for a few years not have that pressure of you know, needing to make rent every month and all of that sort of thing and being able to work on things that that interest me and that I'm passionate about uh, without uh, having to make sure that they're all uh, turning a steady profit in a given moment. Tell me what, what you make of your success on Jeopardy. I mean, did you go on to that show? And I know you pursued it for a while, but did you go on to it thinking you could have this tremendous run? Well, no, I mean, of of course not. I, I, it's something that only one person had ever done before. And I you know, did think that I could be pretty good at it and that I could, you know, win a few games, but nothing like this was was at all on my horizon. And, you know, I think that it's been, it, it's a really great way to become famous. I think Ken Jennings has been quoted as saying, Jeopardy fame is the best fame, um, because it's something that 
it's so uncontroversial. Like everybody loves Jeopardy. Not everybody watches it, but nobody doesn't like it on some level. And so it's, uh, you know, definitely has eased my path into the public eye. What is it like for you to, you know, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about how you kind of were not your genuine self. You hid it not only to everyone around you, but yourself as well. You didn't really know what was going on for a number of years. And here you are today, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you becoming the biggest advocate for, for these these issues and, the, and, and who you are. And I mean, what is that like mm-hmm. to go to have that sort of snapshot back and forth? Well, one thing I always say is that being trans, you're, in some sense, you're an activist every time you walk out the door. Um, just by being yourself, uh, you're, you're, you're kind of taking a stand that you have the right to be yourself. And so in that sense, I think that just living my life prepared me in a certain way to, to be that representative. Because the fact is, there aren't that many trans people. And in most rooms that I'm in, I'm the only trans person there. And so I'm, I'm always feeling some level of pressure or responsibility to be, quote unquote, representing my community. Um, and it's also been, you know, I came out in the Bay Area. It's very liberal, very accepting of trans people. I've had a relatively easy time of it by by trans standards. And it has been really rewarding to be able to um, have an influence in those places that are less accepting and to, to feel that I have made things easier for the people out there that, that are having it harder. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, as you say, everyone watches Jeopardy. Everyone loves Jeopardy. It is a show that skews a bit older. So when mm-hmm. they had an introduction to you and and you wearing the trans pin, what mm-hmm. was the reaction? I mean, did you have sort of an overwhelming positive reaction or did you hear from people who, who didn't understand as well? Um, I mean, I certainly did hear from people who didn't understand and from people who had some pretty hateful things to say. But far, far more were positive. It was, it was, I would say, overwhelmingly positive, um, especially relative to my expectations going into it. Um, I think that there, you know, I definitely are a lot of people that like don't quite understand and have said things that were intended to be supportive that didn't quite come off the way they intended and, and a lot of stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, I, I was not expecting to have as much impact in terms of changing people's minds just by going on a, a Jeopardy that that I turned out that that turned out to be the case. Why why did you want to reveal your dead name in the book? And you you sort of talk about sh- mm-hmm. you know whether or not you were going to do that, and ultimately you do. What why was that important for you to do? Well, I think that uh, partly it, it just made the writing easier. It felt weird to be hinting around it, and it seemed like you know I don't want I don't like secrets and I don't like acting like there's I don't like acting like I'm ashamed of the fact that I was you know assigned male at birth like raised and lived as a as a boy and a man for most of my life and that that's the name I had back then it's you know not something I want people to use or or anything like that and certainly when I first transitioned it was a lot more kind of painful to me because it felt like hearing that felt like People were denying, you know, my truth, telling me that I was a, a, a fake and, and all of that. But I'm comfortable in myself now. I know that I'm not. And so it's lost a lot of that power for me. And because the process of getting onto Jeopardy takes many years, you, in fact, initially applied with that first name, right? 
That's correct. Yeah. And, and did yeah. that make it difficult in, in the decision to then follow through when you when you made the show? I mean, it, it did in a sense. I think every time I was doing anything that involved people that I didn't know closely who were going to be like, oh, I, you know, that person I knew is, turns out as a woman. Um, it's always, there's always this fear. How are they going to take that? What it was, what is that going to mean to them? Will it change how they feel about me? And certainly in a case like, you know, the producers at Jeopardy, who I did not know personally and who held my fate in their hands and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, I, I did wonder what the fact of my transness would, would mean to them. But the fact is that they did not mention, you know, my being trans or, or refer to it in any way. And it was, per- it was clear that unless I brought it up, they never would have. And it would have just gone completely unmentioned. It was entirely in my control when and how I wanted to talk about it. Hmm. You know, Amy, we had Matea Roach on the program not too long ago. Listeners may remember uh, Matea became the most successful Canadian to play Jeopardy after holding mm-hmm. a 23-game streak. You, Amy, actually came up in the conversation. Just have a quick listen to this. For me, watching Amy on Jeopardy, first of all, I was getting to see the game played so well, like much better than I did in most of my games. But I was seeing it played well by somebody who was being very openly herself and who was not compromising how she presented herself in order to make some kind of imaginary person in middle America more comfortable with her. I thought to myself, okay, I have a different but similar sort of decision to make here where I know that there are certain things that I might do that are going to put some people off or that are going to make me come across in a certain way that people don't like. But I made a decision before going on the show. I don't want to spend any mental energy trying to tone that down. Well, what do you make of that and how you had an influence on on Matea? I mean, I it, it makes me so happy. And, you know, they've they've kind of told me some of that before um, at the, the Tournament of Champions and the Masters and all of that. It also makes me laugh to hear their classic deprecation, like, oh, I didn't play that well. Uh, they were really great. Um, but... Yeah, you know, after my streak, I knew that somebody eventually was going to come along that would be the next, you know, super champion, as they like to say. And I was so grateful when it was somebody that wasn't just another, you know, cis dude like all the previous champions have have kind of been. Um, And so, you know, the fact that that I made them more comfortable and able to do that is great. That's that's just the outcome I would have wanted. You're listening to The Sunday Magazine. I'm Rebecca Zanbergen, and I'm speaking to Jeopardy! champ Amy Schneider about her historic run on the game show and her new book. It's called In the Form of a Question. I want to go back a little bit more to, you know, the aftermath of your huge win. You've been reflecting on this concept of, of quote-unquote, smart um, and, mm-hmm. and, and understanding and knowing. And, and what is the difference between those two things to you? I think that... The thing that people misunderstand about sort of, at least for me, Jeopardy, like how my brain works is that it's not just this like collection of facts, like a, I don't know, dictionary or atlas or whatever. It's, uh, they're, they're all kind of connected to each other. There's, there's stories in my mind about each of them, how they relate, how they, re- you know, what, what the importance of them is. And that's how I'm able to remember them. You know, Jeopardy doesn't reward you for knowing things. It rewards you for remembering them when you need to. Um, and so I think that that is 
when people ask how I know all this stuff, it's because I find it interesting. It's because I want to. It's because uh, I want to understand the world. And so in order to understand it, I have to know a lot of things about it. But it's not the knowing that I'm after. It's the understanding. As you've mentioned, you have been cast as a role model and as a representative. What is it like having that responsibility? Um, you know, it's something that I, you know, I don't really notice it. I'm used to it. Um, I think, you know, I do. One of the the fascinating things about being in particular a, a white assigned male at birth trans person is that I've lived that life of being the sort of unmarked category, the default and getting to experience, you know, not just the 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 difficulties that are faced by being in an in an underrepresented class, but to have the contrast of having had that privilege and then having it taken away, um, I think is 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 fascinating. Again, I want I want to know how the world works, and this has given me a perspective I couldn't have gotten in any other way. Um, but in terms of that uh, sort of responsibility or whatever. Uh, it wasn't something that bothered me until I was on Jeopardy, and, and then it started to bother me a bit. And that was really a lot of what was motivating me as I was writing the book was thinking through, you know, what what do I want that my representation to mean? What do you want it to mean? Well, what I want it to mean, I I realized that two things about the fact that I became famous on Jeopardy. One, the reason I was able to change more minds than I expected was because I wasn't on there as a trans woman. I was there playing Jeopardy. And that allowed people to see the trans people are not, um, you know, even as I say, we're all activists, we're actually not, you know, we're all just people. We're all people living our lives that are not trying to interfere with anyone else and are not, you know, the threatening stereotype that we're made out to be. Uh, and so that's one of the things is I just wanted to show my normal life and I wanted to show what the experience of being trans is like from the inside, because not that many people, you know, have had that experience or know someone who has. The second thing about being on Jeopardy is that it's, as I said, it's so uh, non-controversial. Everybody loves it. And ev- everybody was loving me because I was in that non-threatening space, but I feared setting a standard that other trans people couldn't match in real life because I can't match that in real life. I could only Mm. do it on Jeopardy. And so I wanted to show the parts of myself that are, you know, not family friendly, that are not so uncontroversial and non-threatening to show that they're perfectly compatible with being the Jeopardy champion that that you saw on TV. You testified in Ohio against a bill that would restrict gender affirming medical care for minors. But then you say, quote, I at first I felt fraudulent being there. What, what do you mean by that? Well, again, with my sort of privileged Bay Area existence, um, I went to Columbus and the people that invited me there and, and all the other people that were there to testify were people that were there on the ground doing the work, working in the state house, working for nonprofits, working with uh, children who were in real danger. And I was just sort of the celebrity flying in for an afternoon to to talk for a second. Um, and... So that that's why I was feeling like a fraud. But what they told me is that this is my part to play. Everyone has a different part. And because I was there, I got attention and headlines that none of them could have gotten. And that that's fine, that that's a perfectly valid way to contribute. And it, it meant a lot to me. 
You know, there is a lot of talk right now. Uh, people talk about the culture wars here in Canada, and there are governments that are changing uh, school policies on pronouns and names and when uh, mm-hmm. teachers should recognize those names and when a parent gets to know if they want to use those names. And a lot of talk about this being a rollback on on LGBTQ rights for kids. When when you look at some of these discussions going on and, and knowing what your childhood was like and unsure of who you were, uh, how, how do you, what sort of framing do you Put around this whole thing? Well, I think that one thing is that, you know, it, it's kind of awful. It's it's really causing a lot of pain to a lot of kids. And, and the, the fact that children have become this target is so, it, it makes me so sad that those are the people that are going to suffer. Um, but the other thing I think about it is, you know, you talk about a rollback, that's only possible because there are things to roll back. There were no laws targeting gender-affirming care when I was a kid because it wasn't a thing that anybody even considered. And so while this is upsetting and uh, frightening in the short term, I think that it's just a backlash against a movement that already has too much momentum to be defeated. Because I think that once people do kind of see the light, if you will, on trans people and and come to accept them. I think that's a one-way street. I don't think people go back from that. And so every time somebody does that, it's just one more nail in the eventual coffin of these, these attacks. I want to I want to ask you about the word smart and you write a fair bit about uh, uh, that word in the mm-hmm. book and and people's various definitions of that word and in fact it seems as though society you believe has sort of one great way that we interpret that word and and we should perhaps broaden our view of what it means what what does it mean to you I mean I think it's it is a thing that has a lot of dimensions to it you can be smart in a lot of different ways and I think that the way that Jeopardy measures, uh, which is somewhat analogous to the way that, you know, standardized tests measure it, um, is the one that everybody's in everybody's mind is that's what smart means. And it just kind of bums me out when I talk to people because it's so often that they will say something like, oh, I can never be as smart as you and, and, and all of that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, the sp- being able to answer trivia questions, I'm perfectly proud of my, ab- my ability to do it. But it's not that useful in daily life outside of an artificial quiz show. Is that true? I mean, you know, it's it's nice. I, I, I like knowing things. And there it certainly comes up. It comes in handy more than you would necessarily think. But at the same time, day to day, how many times does anybody ask me the capital of, uh, you know, Liechtenstein? Not that often. <laughs> Which is... Vaduz. <laughs> okay. You know, one really great thing about your book, and I know others have pointed it out as well, is that you say right off the bat, you know, I, I assume some of the things I've written about in this book, I will disprove or believe otherwise in, in years mm-hmm. to come, essentially <laughs> uh-huh. tell, telling the audience, you know, I think this now, I may not think it in a few years. But why, why did you want to do that? Well, it's just something, kind of a philosophy of my life. I mean, I look back at you know, one of the things I say is I was transphobic as a kid. I was raised that way. I used to have a lot of beliefs that I now think were, you know, not just mistaken, but kind of actively wrong. And so I have to think that if I, if that was the case in the past, then it is likely the case that there are things I think now that I will eventually come to see were, were mistaken. And so I just always want to have that kind of like open mind and humility uh, for myself so that I don't 
double down on things just because I used to believe it and, and get trapped in uh, a place that I don't want to be. Yeah, it's an, I think it's an important lesson. I think all of us should be willing to sort of evolve, right? I, th- I guess that's kind mm-hmm. of the point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I think we can agree you are smart, whatever the version and definition of smart is, you're it. Um, and there are other versions as well, of course. But I'm, I'm curious before you go, uh, what, what's sort of something right now that you've been digging into and researching and reading about just just as something that, you know, is part of your regular life as as it, that is sort of evidence of the way you <laughs> can manage to stick all these facts in your brain? Yeah, I've been it started off as. Uh, I, I, I was I went past this road marker sign that said it was the site of the first long distance telephone line. And I was very sort of interested in how what they meant by that and how do you find define long distance exactly and all of that sort of thing. And so then I, I just wound up going down a rabbit hole of, of just reading about the development of the telephone and all stuff that I had kind of known about Alexander Graham Bell and Alicia Gray, but kind of getting into the details of the controversy. It's, it's been pretty interesting. So your life is just a series of rabbit holes, really. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it really is. Yeah. Okay. Well, Amy, I appreciate the chat today. Thank you so much for this and congratulations on all the success. Thank you. Amy Schneider is a Jeopardy! champion and author of the memoir In the Form of a Question, The Joys and Rewards of a Curious Life. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. As you've been hearing in the news, bombing continued in Gaza this morning with reports of explosions near a hospital in central Gaza and at a refugee camp in the south. Israel says it has hit 12,000 targets across Gaza since the war began October 7th. More than 9,700 Gazans are reported dead. Meanwhile, Arab leaders publicly pressed U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken on Saturday to secure an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. But Blinken says a ceasefire in Gaza would allow Hamas to regroup and attack. At the same time, people are watching and waiting to see what's happening at the Rafah border crossing in Egypt. There was hope that Canadians trapped in Gaza could get out as early as today. Another part of this story involves Qatar and its role in this conflict. All last week, we heard about the hundreds of people allowed to exit Gaza through Egypt at the Rafah border. It was a deal struck between Israel, Egypt and Hamas in coordination with the United States. And Qatar brokered the deal. Qatar has also been key in negotiating the release of four hostages held by Hamas. And this past weekend, its foreign affairs ministers met with leaders of other Arab countries and the U.S. Secretary of State in Jordan. Yunus Anjiabadi has been following Qatar's involvement. He is the deputy director of the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy. It's a North American-based foreign policy think tank. Yunus, good morning. Good morning. Eunice, before we, we start talking about Qatar's role in all of this, set the stage for us. Tell us a little bit about the country, where it's located, how many people live there. 
It's important to uh, provide some context, uh, especially when discussing the role of Qatar that is playing now as a mediator and negotiator with respect to uh, releasing this uh, civilian hostages held by Hamas. So it's a small, gas-rich country of under 3 million people in the Persian Gulf region that hosts the largest U.S. military base in the Middle East, and it is designated by the U.S. as a major non-NATO ally. So it's important to understand that this country has very close, warm, and strategically important uh, relations with uh, with Washington. And despite small size, it's been relatively successful in uh, conducting an independent foreign policy and managing its relations with greater powers, both at the regional level, but also international level. And uh, as you may remember, in 2017, it paid the price for it. A number of Arab countries, uh, such as the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and Egypt, imposed an air, land, and sea blockade on the country for not aligning with them on regional issues. So, and as you as you know, it, it hosts the leaders of Hamas. It also hold, hosts the leaders of Taliban in, in the country. And uh, it's been quite uh, effective in terms of facilitating dialogues among the parties that have conflicts with one another. It also uh, has been quite uh, successful in terms of facilitating dialogue even between Tehran and Washington, which led to release of uh, prisoners, uh, U.S. prisoners held by Iran in exchange for Iran's frozen assets. So it's been quite active both at the regional level, but also at the international level. And we also see that playing with respect to Israel-Hamas war. And, and how did it secure that place in in the region? And, and, and you know, in spite of, of hosting Hamas's office in its country, still we have the U.S. and other nationals interested in working with Qatar. So uh, in order to understand this uh, complex dynamic, we have to uh, underline the, the basically the complexities that we have on the geopolitical level in the Middle East from the Iran-U.S. for four decades of tensions, Israeli shadow war uh, with uh, Iran and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to the ongoing you know, conflict in Syria and Yemen. So it completely makes sense uh, for small states like Qatar to invest in uh, developing its capacity and uh, capability to become a mediator in, in this region. And to their credit, I think they've been uh, relatively successful uh, in doing that. And as a small state, uh, you need to ensure that uh, you are secure. And in order to ensure that security, you need to be able to work and uh, basically have dialogue with different parties. And as I said, they've been quite successful in doing that with the U.S., with Iran, and with some of these groups that are uh, designated and considered terrorists by the West as well. Yeah, it's interesting because not only does it host Hamas, the U.S. has a large military base in Qatar as well. How does it walk that line between the two? So uh, what Qatar has been able to do uh, in the past uh, decade or so is to basically ensure that uh, its its security at the regional level uh, is uh, basically served by uh, working with uh, regional powers like the U, uh, like 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 Iran and like Saudi Arabia, but at the same time, it understands very well that uh, the U.S. is the great, is is the most powerful country in the world, and uh, it in order to also be able to balance its relations with uh, Iran uh, and uh, other regional countries in the world, it needs to work with with the Americans, and uh, by that, it's been 
quite uh, successful in balancing that uh, relations between uh, both the regional countries, but also uh, global powers as well. Mm -hmm. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told Middle Eastern leaders just last week there can be no more business as usual with Hamas. Qatar is reportedly open to reviewing its relationship with Hamas once there is this resolution to secure the hostages held in Gaza. So where where do you see Qatar's relationship with Hamas going at this point if they have the U.S. pressuring them in this way that it can't we can't continue in the way that Qatar has been? So as you rightly mentioned, uh, part, based on uh, the report on Was- uh, uh, put out by Washington Post, the U.S. and Qatar agreed to revisit Doha's association uh, with Hamas. But this is going to happen after this hostage crisis is resolved. And there is a political bloc in the U.S. particularly that is unhappy with Qatar hosting the leaders of Hamas. Uh, and uh, we all know that uh, at this point, given that uh, Qatar has a mo- monopoly over this relationship, and uh, this it it only act it it is basically the only actor that can facilitate uh, you know dialogue uh, between Hamas and uh, other parties involved in this war. I don't think it will be a smart move to push Qatar to move forward with cutting its associations, but it definitely needs to be something that will be considered after the hostages it's released. It's also important to note that uh, Qatar, it has uh, and it has kept and continues to have back-channel contacts with Israel. The head of Israel's intelligence agency, Mossad, was in Qatar last week to discuss the efforts to get the hostages released. And then when, you, when we look at uh, the role of Qatar since the war broke out and since Hamas uh, conducted its attacks on Israel, uh, you'll see that Qatar has been able to get four uh, hostages released uh, by Hamas. And as you covered uh, during your uh, opening, it has been also able to work with uh, Egypt, the United States, to open uh, the Rafa border to get some humanitarian assistance in Gaza. So it's a, it's it's an actor that uh, we need to be working with, and especially as we try to get uh, Canadians out of Gaza and. Uh, its association with Hamas uh, needs to be addressed after the hostages are released and uh, this this conflict is, is also over. And and how how does Qatar sort of manage what's happening between Blinken and the other leaders in the region? Because there is some pushback uh, from the U.S. on what they believe should happen and, and how to deal with Hamas and whether or not there should be a ceasefire, that kind of thing. And there's there, there, they seem to be at odds. How, how does Qatar sort of play a role in in those two sides? So what we've seen so far, with the exception of some countries, uh, the majority of Arab countries, and I think uh, very much influenced by the role of Qatar, have coordinated so far to speak in one voice to the international community with, with respect to the humanitarian disaster in Gaza. But this was also well reflected uh, in their bo- in basically the separate meetings that the Arab leaders had uh, with uh, with the U.S. Secretary Ant- Antony Blinken, uh, Blinken, but also with their joint meetings. They, as you said, they're all all calling for an immediate ceasefire and continuous opening of the Rafah crossing to allow the flow of aid of those living under basically siege in Gaza. But uh, Secretary Clinton uh, publicly uh, disagreed and pushed back against such a request, uh, making the case that, uh, as you said, ceasefire would not only let Hamas 
regroup, but also launch more attacks on Israel. And I think what Qatar has been doing is basically coordinating with other Arab leaders and getting, you know, non-Arab uh, countries on, also on board to push uh, the United States uh, and Israel to move toward a ceasefire. What we have seen from the U.S. side is that uh, Secretary Blinken has been trying to get Israel to agree to a temporary humanitarian pauses to allow aid in Gaza. And I think that would be something that, if done, uh, would facilitate uh, the way in which uh, ceasefire can also uh, be achieved. But again, it's something that it is still uh, uh, out of sight, uh, given the developments uh, on the ground. You know, Qatar, of course, while it is recognized as a mediator in a number of instances, including right now, it, it does sort of have its own checkered history and current state of affairs right now as well. It hosted the World Cup last year, and we certainly heard a lot of concerns about uh, human rights concerns, uh, allegations of discrimination and the mistreatment of, of migrant workers. Mm-hmm. I mean, should the international community be pushing more for accountability on that end while it continues to work with this country to to, to deal with these sorts of nego- negotiations? I think uh, this can be done uh, both ways. It, it, we need to uh, understand the role that Qatar is playing at this moment, and it's the only player that we can uh, engage with in order to get more civilians out of Gaza and uh, to broker peace in the long term. And uh, with respect to hosting World Cup and becoming a, a more international actor, uh, I should say that uh, this is not only limited to Qatar. You see that, for example, Saudi Arabia will be also hosting uh, the World Cup uh, soon uh, in the Middle East region. And countries like United Arab Emirates, uh, they're also trying to uh, basically build an image of themselves that goes beyond the region by bringing more international stakeholders uh, to the Middle East and show that the Middle East is not uh, what uh, you know people usually think of as a, as a, as a region that is uh, always engaged in, in the conflict or war. Uh, but I think it's important to have these important conversations about human rights, uh, principles that we believe in, democracy with them, while at the same time recognizing the important and the pragmatic role that they play in the region, especially when uh, involves our interests uh, in that region and beyond. You know, obviously, as you've pointed out, Qatar is certainly working with the U.S., other Arab leaders, and Hamas. But how receptive is Israel in in all of its mediation efforts? So far, Based on uh, the public statements and the news that we've been uh, receiving on that, and Israel uh, appreciates uh, working with Qatar at this moment because it knows that uh, Qatar is now the only player that can uh, speak to Hamas and can, uh, uh, you know, uh, communicate messages to Hamas in order to get the hostages out. Uh, held by Hamas. But what happens after uh, the hostages uh, are released and uh, the the conflict is over is something that uh, we will uh, discuss more and we will hear more of Israelis, I would assume, criticizing the the role of Qatar, especially in hosting the leaders of Hamas. But something that I I want to also highlight here is that once uh, the pressure uh, mounts on Qatar to uh, 
push Hamas leaders out of the country, the next country that they'll go to is probably Iran. And uh, once uh, you have leaders of Hamas in Iran, then there, then there will not be as much of an access as it, as it already exists uh, to Hamas uh, through Qatar, because Iran uh, is definitely uh, not in uh, it's it not interested in having any kind of conversation, nor it has the trust of the West to have any con- uh, any kind of conversation with respect to uh, peace building, peacemaking, or uh, basically f- facilitating a dialogue or negotiations. Yunus Zanjiabadi, we're going to leave it there this morning. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Yunus Zanjiabadi is the deputy director of the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy. It's a North American-based foreign policy think tank. I'm Rebecca Zanbergen, in for Pia Chattopadhyay, and you're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. Now, as you may have heard, we had Jeopardy champ Amy Schneider here last hour, and I sure could use some of her smarts right about now for my big radio debut playing the Sunday Magazine's monthly challenge, That's Puzzling. Each month, the host of this show faces off against a CBC colleague and one super smart listener in a series of linguistic brain teasers. Now, it's my first time in the hot seat, but thankfully, I have someone to guide me through it all. Our That's Puzzling Quizmaster, Peter Brown, is here to lead the way, as always. Hello, Peter. Hello, Rebecca. I have have good news and I have bad news. What would you like first? I'll take the bad. The bad news is uh, we've been doing this for a little over a year, and... The listeners have found us, and they are excellent at this. Mm-hmm. We have some elite-level puzzle solvers calling in, and you'll be facing one of those today. The good news is Pia has not won yet this season. <laughs> she is 0-2, and in fact, if I remember right, mm-hmm. she didn't even put a point on the board the last time we played. Well, so, I feel like that's going to be somewhere where I land today as well. We will see. If you can finish top three, which is the Canadian bronze, (laughs) you will have kept up the standard. Okay. So let's meet Rebecca's opponents for this month. First, we are joined by CBC's senior entertainment reporter, Eli Glasner. Hello, Eli. Hey, Pierre. Eli, what sports movie character will you be emulating today? Do you see yourself as plucky (laughs) underdog Rocky in Rocky 1 or the scrappy underdog Rudy in the movie that makes me cry or the too scrappy Tanya Harding in I, Tanya? Who are you today? I mean, I, Tanya is a wonderful film, but I am not going to emulate that psychotic character. I, I wish I could be the, the Rocky uh, swinging with the best of them. I'm probably closer to, to Rudy, so I'll, I'll try and uh, channel my inner scrappiness. So you're four foot nothing, a hundred and nothing, just happy to get an education. That sounds about right, <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Welcome. And our third player qualified for today's game by entering our That's Puzzling Listener Challenge. We asked you to invent a new word to describe the tiny amount of time between raking your leaves and seeing your lawn covered in leaves again. That tiny <laughs> microscopic amount of time between clean lawn and covered in leaves. And the winning word for that is... Enter rake numb. 
Interregnum is excellent. <laughs> That's good. The person who submitted that great entry joins us today in the Puzzle Dome is Bruce Ray in Vancouver. Hello, Bruce. Hi, happy to be here. Now, uh, we got it. But for those who don't know, you're referencing the interregnum. You know what the interregnum was, I assume. Absolutely. The time between uh, kings when there's a vacancy Ooh, on the throne. Fancy. Bruce, I ask you these next questions to intimidate Eli and Rebecca. Is it true, Bruce, that you have a degree in linguistics and a favorite letter in the dictionary? Uh, yes, that's entirely true. What would that letter be, Bruce? Uh, well, it's the shortest section of the dictionary, the letter X. If I'm uh, looking at a dictionary, I flip to the X section to see how long it is, to see if it's a good unabridged dictionary or not. And then secondly, ever since I was in school, I collect words that start with X. So I've got a very large collection of X words. Well, oh this, this this has worked to scare me, if that's what you were <laughs> intending to do. <laughs> Peter, can we just strike all the X words from the yeah. quiz today? <laughs> None of the answers will begin with the letter X, I can promise Darn. you that. But Bruce, do you have a favorite? What's your favorite X word? Um, someone asked me that, and I had to think about it, and I said the Xanthokyanopy. Or xanthokyanopsy, it's a variant spelling. And, I mean, we all know. Rebecca knows. Eli knows. I know. But for those listeners who don't know what (laughs) that thing you said means, what does it mean? Uh, Well, uh, xantho is the root meaning yellow, and cyan or cyan means blue, and opsy is like optic. So it's a form of colorblindness where you can see yellow and blue, but cannot distinguish red and green. So it's a fancy medical term for red, green, colorblindness. And three of us just went, huh. Huh. Very interesting. And it will leave my brain in moments. (laughs) Yes. I learned an interesting word for forgetting the name of yellow-blue color blindness. I think I have word blindness. Yes, exactly. Uh, Sadly for you today, Bruce, none of our correct answers will be the X-Files or X-Wing fighters, but good luck to you. Uh, So, I think we're ready, and two of our players are filled with fear. Eli, Bruce, Rebecca, let's play That's Puzzling. We start today with a definition challenge. I'm going to give you a word, actually a phrase, and three possible usages of that phrase. Two of them are real and one I've made up. Mm. Your challenge is to spot the lie. There are two real, one fake, spot the fake, this is worth a point. Which of the following is not a real usage of our phrase, which is blue hen? So, oh, this is what, if you're yellow-blue colorblind, you might not be able to see all of this hen. Which of the following is not a real usage of the phrase blue hen? Is it in horse breeding, a mare that produces high-quality offspring? Is it the mascot of University of Delaware sports teams, nicknamed the Fightin' Blue Hens? Or is it in the late 1960s, a popular folk music club in San Francisco. I've made up one of those. Is it the breeding mayor, the Delaware sports mascot, or the folk club in San Francisco? Rebecca, we're coming to you first. Remember, there's no pressure. Which do you think is the fake? Yeah, you know, I was listening, and the horse one just sounds too on point that it. I feel, you know, blue hen, farmyard, that kind of stuff. I, I'm going to go. <laughs> that's really all I've got here. That's lots. <laughs> so I'm going with uh, the, the horse-related answer. So you think the horse-related answer is not real? Is a fake. That's right. Okay. Bruce, what are your thoughts? Well, I was on the same wavelength. I didn't really think if it's the hen, why is that referring to a horse? And uh, on the other hand, the other two ones are very specific, non 
phrases, so it's really hard to say that. But I'm going to go with the uh, horse one as well as fake. All right, Eli, you have a strategic decision to make. Yeah, I well, I decided the folk club seemed too easy. I I was I found the the horse the horse idea compelling, and I can kind of buy the mascot. Or that does you could say any mascot has any name, but I'm something about the folk club. It just felt like yeah, put two horse together. That's a famous folk club. So I'm saying that's that's the lie. Eli is right. Oh, come on. <laughs> it's the folk wow. club. I mean, I would go to a folk club called the Blue Hen, wouldn't you? I mean, I'd go, but <laughs> there was there was the purple onion, and it's true, you could be the you could be the indigo asparagus and that would be a folk club. <laughs> but so wait, that horse thing is tr- what so what, say a, that a again. Blue hen yeah. is what? A blue hen mare, M A R E, is a female horse that produces quality offspring. So it's a breeding mare. So that's some someone would be like, that's a blue hen right there. You should see yeah. what she Yeah. Oh what you that's my oh, prize. what you got in your hands right here is a blue hen mare. Yeah. Is that is that what a horse breeder sounds like? That's my answer. I don't <laughs> yes. get out of the city much, Rebecca. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's that's how that in the movie of Eli's life when yeah. he plays the horse breeder. <laughs> Interact with farmers on film, basically. So the You just bad... saw the straw coming out of your mouth too. <laughs> yeah. You just need to go, and you would have been great. So, Eli has leapt out. He has one point. Bruce and Rebecca, still lots of points on the board, yet to score. So, Rebecca is thus far keeping up the tradition of Pia. (laughs) For our second round today, we are playing what we call Monster Mashups. I have taken two words or phrases that have at least a syllable in common and mashed them together. So, for example, if I asked you to mash up a Canadian high school quiz... With Tom Cruise's fighter pilot blockbuster, the answer would be reach for the top, plus Top Gun, reach for the Top Gun. I will offer each mashup to one player. If they can't get it, the others can steal. These are worth two points, and hints are available. Let's play monster mashup. Yes, Eli, you are up first, sir. Your challenge is, remember there are hints available. Take a word for a wood, a wood, Mash it up with a food. Now, here's what the food breaks down to. It's three kinds of meat layered between three slices of toasted bread. It's a wood, and it's that food. And there's a hint. Okay. Well, uh, three kinds of food. I think that's a club sandwich, which is just the best thing in the world. So I'm going to go with something club. A wood. A wood club? I mean, like, a wood could a wood. It could be are you remembering oak? Are you remembering there's a hint of it? Okay, what's the hint? Because yes. the hint, wood please. might be, it might, for instance, be a three wood or a five wood. Well, that's a big hint. It is. <laughs> a wood? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a three, oh, oh, oh. You started to say it. Golf club. Golf club. So the whole mashup is? Golf club? And then what's the back part? Oh, golf club sandwich? Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> golf club sandwich. Yes, Eli. of course. If that was curling, I would have been yelling, hurry! Yeah. <laughs> and I would have been slipping on the ice. And I like how you got it after your competitors, but you still got it all right. Well done, Eli. <laughs> Thank you. Rebecca, you got the last one. Let's see if you get this one. Well, you, 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 I mean, I, I made it sound like I got it. <laughs> oh, 
That might have been psych out noises. Well done. I mean, I kind of was getting the gist, but I didn't land right where I was supposed to. But anyway, I was close. So, But I like this strategy. You could just hear other people's clues and just loudly in the background go, too easy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Rebecca, you will not have that opportunity here because you're up first. Ah, shoot. Okay. Mash up the name of the 13th Prime Minister of Canada with oh a term goodness. for 13 of something. A baker's dozen. Oh, uh, You're almost there. Thirteenth <laughs> Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, Diefenbaker. Say the whole Diefenbaker's thing. Diefenbaker's dozen. Yes, Rebecca. Oh my goodness, I got it. I'm so impressed by the Diefenbaker part. <laughs> Should we just shut it? <laughs> what a yeah, sigh of I relief was, I was that thinking, was. Was there a baker? <laughs> yeah. I feel so happy. <laughs> <laughs> you just remember this moment. However, this turns out, you I know, are on I, the board and you're still in the top. I feel three. like I got to do the George Costanza thing and just walk out of the room now. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. And then at the end, you come back and pretend you never walked out. Do the complete Costanza. <laughs> Did you? know instantly that Diefenbaker was the 13th no, or you just figured no, out like no 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 I was Baker. looking for Baker yes okay yeah. all right good <laughs> yeah don't be done if you're going to be scared of anyone let's be clear be scared of Bruce exactly <laughs> Bruce our final mashup goes to you no X's your challenge is to mash up two animals the first one is a giant dog from the Alps and the second is a burrowing animal with big ears and a long snout there's a giant dog from the Alps, and you. Wow. A, okay. And a burrowing animal with big ears and a okay, long I'm, snout. I'm thinking Saint Bernard, Nard. Wow. Oh, Ard. Okay. Um. So uh, Saint Bernard Vark. Yes, sir. Bruce, well played. That is that. That is next level. That was because smooth. <laughs> that was good. Rebecca, just say you knew that one even. If I, you didn't. That would. I mean, come on, make them a little bit harder. I was okay. thinking about anteaters for some reason, so Same. I wasn't even close. <laughs> I was also <laughs> on anteater. <laughs> well, yeah, if it wasn't Saint Bernard, I was really scooped on that. And then like sheepdogs. No, I. Can don't I know. just point out we didn't even need the hints on those last two? That's how strong today's game is. There you go. The score at the moment is Eli three. Rebecca two, Bruce two. So this anyone anyone could win this. We turn now to our final round. We're going to stick with monster mashups. And this round, the good news, Eli, is it's pop culture. The bad news is it may it just depends entirely what age you are. We're in the pop culture <laughs> realm here. These clues combine two different art forms. Different eras, so depending what your tastes are, we could well have some steals here. We haven't had a steal yet. These are worth two points. Hints are available. We're going to start with Bruce. Bruce, for this mashup, you're going to hear a recent interview clip and then a song from 1988. What we're looking for is the TV star in the first clip and the singer of the hit song, the TV star and the singer. Here is your audio clue, Bruce. After the kids have done a lip sync for their life, and one girl lip syncs better than the other to save herself, and the other girl uh, has to sashay away. Can I take Bruce's? Me too. <laughs> yeah, please do. I'm, I'm stumped right now. Oh, no. Oh, Bruce. So um, I can give you, I can give you uh, a hint if you would like. Uh, well, no, for the music side, that's that's Paula Abdul. So I've got that. Uh, so something that it ends in Paul. Hint is and, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I I really don't know. What was the first category? It was a- It's a TV star, yeah. and I'll give you the hint because you're too proud to ask. That first person's TV show is a drag competition. Okay, yeah, because I was thinking maybe RuPaul. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, but I didn't know how that would go. So, so RuPaul, uh, RuPaula Abdul. Yes, sir. Oh, the suffering by Eli and Rebecca, both <laughs> of whom knew it. <laughs> Roughly 40 minutes ago. I feel like I'm the right vintage for all of that right there. It was, right. Just, it was just perfect. All right, Rebecca. I, I have. Yeah, I, I do have that Paula Abdul album. <laughs> do you really? Wow. I do really. Solid. Solid all choice. Right. Rebecca, we turn to you, and uh, sadly, uh, everything you're about to hear is not the vintage of the last Oh, three. man. I'll get you there. I'll get you there, <laughs> okay. Rebecca. Okay. This mashup involves two musical artists. One from the 1700s. Oh, my goodness. One from the 1970s. So 1700s, you know, you're looking for a classical composer. Mm -hmm. You're looking for the composer Mm -hmm. and then the band. The composer and then the band. Here is your audio clue. Oh. I don't know it. But I know that Yo-Yo Ma always does it. (laughs) Or did it once and it's played all the time. Give it to Eli. I don't know. Um, uh, I taking can, care of business. I can give you I'm a hint. Too. Okay, g- give me give me that hint, please. The band, the second one, uh, is led by the guy who hosted CBC's Vinyl Tap. That guy. Yep. Oh, uh, that exact guy. Uh, that that's a good hint. Yeah, I know. I did, but, and yet, and yet. Uh, you know what? I, 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 can I can I defer to to Eli? I mean, like, am I allowed to give up on point? He just wants it, right? And well, Eli is Eli does get the first opportunity to steal here. He just j- just let him. Let just let him. Yeah, you know you would have got there. You just don't want to waste our time, right? Uh, I, I sure. Yes, let's go with that. <laughs> Eli, what do you think? I believe what we're driving for is Bachman Turner Overdrive, as in Bach, and then BTO. Say a little something before Bach. Bok, bok, bok. Do you know his, do you remember his initials? Do you know anything? Oh, no. Ba- initials of Bach. Is it JS? Oh, J JSBTO. Is that what you're doing there? No, it was. Okay, I'm go- I am going to defer to the judges because Eli did get it right. But you <laughs> but- didn't. But you didn't get JS Bach. And then Bruce jumped in before his yeah, turn. I will. I will share my. My winnings, my points. Well, I'm happy I, to share the hint. There. I right. like that we sort of do this as a group game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I feel like we've sort of taken it in another direction here. All right, then. <laughs> so JSBTO or JS. JS Bachman Turner Overdrive JS is what it is. Ba- oh, I see. JS. I don't, I don't think I would have gotten JS on my own. I, okay. Yeah, I'm not. Here's where we familiar. are if we're splitting the points on that. Okay. Because I said, let's go to the judges, and then you guys just jumped in and solved it. So I defer. <laughs> I defer to the group. My hands are in the air like a dealer in Vegas. I am just out where we are right now. Rebecca got on the board with two points. That's Excellent. all that matters. Top three finish. <laughs> Eli has four points. Bruce has five because Ooh. you split that one. There you go. Eli gets this last clue. Oh, God. If Eli misses it, then Bruce wins. Stop building up the pressure, Brown. Eli, it's all to play for. 
all your dreams. Four <laughs> years of training in, in smoky hockey rinks at 5 a.m., <laughs> mastering that routine. And then you turn up for your Olympic skate and you get this challenge. Mash up this classic rock song from 1968 with a movie from 2006. You're going to hear the song, and we want the song title and the movie title. Here we go. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. There you are, Emily. How many times do I have to scream your name? A actually, it's Andy. My name is Andy. Andrea, but uh, everybody calls me Andy. <laughs> I need 10 or 15 skirts from Calvin Klein. What, what kind of skirts do you Please bore someone else with your questions. And make sure we have Pier 59 oh, wait, at 8 a.m. tomorrow. Oh, okay. Did DeMarshalier yep, confirm? Okay. Okay, yep, I got this. I got it. I got it. Get him on the phone. All right, Meryl, that's enough. Okay. Shutting down Meryl Street. <laughs> so here's the situation. If Eli gets it right, he wins. Eli thinks he has it. If Bruce gets it right and he has, Eli's gotten it wrong, Bruce wins. He also thinks he has it. I know Rebecca has it, but we're not going to ask her. Yeah, it doesn't so, matter. I just It's clear I always have it. Yes. So think it, think it while they say it. Eli for the win. What is that? Sympathy for the Devil Wears Prada. Yes, sir. Wow. Six points for Eli. I, I, will say, I will say there was a moment there where I was blanking on the movie title names. Like I, I could look at I could read out the cast, but I didn't I didn't have it for a second, but then thank I, I figured it out. Eli, this is where you get to do your Oscar acceptance speech, oh, and I will pay you play you off after five <laughs> seconds. Who would you like to thank with tears in your eyes? Uh, you know, my drama teacher, Mr. Graham. Who, uh, no, wait, I, and my mother and my... Oh, God Eli, very well played. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank Bruce, you were right in there. Excellent work, sir. Uh, oh, not quite starting with an X, but close. Oh, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. And Rebecca... You yes. were right in there. I was, kind of, for a little bit, anyway. Do you, remember, do you remember that your joy when you got that one in the first round? Oh, I felt so much joy. <laughs> just be just, in that. That's uh, your happy place. Just yeah. be in that moment. I'm going to go right back there. <laughs> Congratulations to our winner, Eli, our runner-up, Bruce, and our bronze medalist, top three finisher, Rebecca. Thank you, players. Thank you, listeners. And that's that's puzzling. Thank you, Peter, Eli, and Bruce. Now we play That's Puzzling every month. And in December, Pia will be back to battle our youngest ever contestant. You'll want to be here for that in a few weeks. In the meantime, we're looking for a listener for the first edition of That's Puzzling for 2024. If you'd like to throw your hat in the ring, here's what you need to do. We want you to invent a word that describes the person who shows up at the gym in early January and instantly realizes it's not for them. Email us your made-up word to sunday at cbc.ca. Put That's Puzzling in the subject line and please include your phone number. You have until the end of the day on Sunday, November 26th. That's the last Sunday in November to submit your word again. We want you to invent a word that describes the person who shows up at the gym in early January and instantly realizes it's not for them. The winner will play with us in January and win the ultimate prize, a Sunday magazine coffee mug.
And with that, we've come to the end of another round of the Sunday Magazine podcast. Our producers are Sarah Joyce Battersby, Levi Garber, Brianna Goss, Andrea Huang, Pete Mitten, and Aronde Williams. Our senior producer is Danielle Grogan, and executive producers are Brian Colton and Donna Dingwall. And we want to send out a very special shout out to one of our team members in particular. For the past two years, Tracy Fuller has been a producer and our studio director at the Sunday Magazine here on the other side of the glass, helping to bring the show to air every Sunday morning. And now she is heading off for an exciting new opportunity at CBC Ottawa. So from the whole team, thank you, Tracy, for all your great work and support over the years. I'm Rebecca Zandrigan. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.